And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome back to the show. It's, of course, Monday as we get the week underway, second week of May. Don't forget that uh, this Sunday is Mother's Day. So uh, that's going to sneak up on you pretty quick if you're not aware of it. Don't forget to call your mom. She'll, you know. Did you know that Mother's Day, by the way, is the second most celebrated holiday of the year? Yeah, right. Christmas number one, Mother's Day number two. You know where Father's Day falls? 21st on the list. Father's Day comes after Arbor Day. I had to look up what Arbor Day was, but that's where Father's Day ranks. Just saying. This goes to show who really has the control in the house is all I'm saying. Uh, anyway, a couple things, uh, of course, this morning bank stocks are going to be up because there were no failures over the weekend, which was actually some good news that we didn't have any more regional bank failures. Uh, over the weekend, PNC basically cut their dividends Said banking system is fine. I'm sorry, not PNC, PacWest. Uh, cut their dividends and everything is fine. Uh, don't worry about it. Those stocks are going to be up nicely this morning, of course, uh, after a brutal beating. So, you know, it's not that they're making gains here. They're just recovering some of their losses. Um, but overall, the market was fairly strong on Friday following that much stronger than anticipated um, employment report. And in fact, that earnings, that employment report was the 13th straight beat of employment expectations. So 13 months in a row, employment has beat expectations. That is the longest stretch of employment beats as far as we can track it back. <laughs> so, it is, and, and not by a small margin either. It is by a tremendous margin that we've had 13 straight months of employment reports beating estimates. Don't know what that tells you. Don't know if somebody's, uh, you know, conspiracy theory says, you know, it's uh, all being manipulated for political gain, but, you know, We'll find out eventually sooner than later because it's all about employment. Uh, you know, employment's all about the economy. So if the numbers are true, well, the economy is a lot stronger than everybody expects. If not, and we're going to get a lot, of, uh, a lot of revisions, we're going to find that out anyway because the economic data elsewhere is going to show up and, and tell us that. Um, outside of that, though, markets did rally nicely on Friday. Of course, Apple's report on Thursday evening uh, really gave a boost to the tech sector. Um, we saw both the NASDAQ and the S&P rally uh, almost 2% on, on Friday. And again, you know, outside of that rally, the week was actually fairly weak. Uh, we actually ended lower for the week uh, despite uh, the, that strong rally on Friday. And it was also kind of interesting because last Thursday and Friday, the week before, we had two strong days that got the market back up near its previous February peak. Sold off Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Markets rallied on Friday a bit. Uh, you know, kind of hockey stick saved the week. Coming again off that 50-day moving average, retesting that downtrend support. Again, market continues to be very bullishly biased right now, despite all of the, the major headlines. Uh, but importantly, though, the market is just simply kind of trading in a range. And we've been actually just consolidating this advance that we had coming off these March lows really for about the last month or so. Um, really since the beginning of April, the market hasn't gone anywhere. We've just kind of been trading 
up and down here, um, just coming off testing support at the 50-day moving average, just holding this kind of consolidation pattern. So the uh, the uh, initial buy signal that we got, we triggered the sell signal uh, back on about April the 15th. And since then, the market's just been consolidating. We're working off that sell signal. So again, while the market continues not to go anywhere, uh, we have the sell signal, which is limiting upside to the markets right now. But um, the longer that the market can just kind of hold on to this consolidation pattern, that will allow those kind of buy signals to work themselves off, get the market back to a more oversold condition, and that'll set the market up for its next advance, you know, whatever that's going to be, um, you know, June, July, August, wherever it comes. Um, but again, the market's just co continuing to hold in here very firmly. Uh, really, ever since the beginning of the year, the market's up about 7.5% for the year. Most of that's been led by technology stocks, which is the exact dichotomy of what we saw last year. Last year, it was all about the inflation trade, energy stocks leading the way up about 40% for the year. Um, this year, it's, it's the disinflationary sectors, the cyclical stocks, discretionary communications and technology. Technology and communications both up well over 20% for the year already. So if you just own tech stocks, you're doing great this year. But unfortunately, most investors weren't because last year, everybody sold their tech stocks thinking that, well, technology was dead because of inflation. And that turned out to be a very wrong call, which is always the case with the markets when everybody begins to think one thing. We always talk about, you know, be careful of kind of the mainstream narrative. When everybody thinks one thing is done or one thing is going to be this way, typically the market does something very different. That's why we wrote in November that, you know, everybody was expecting FANG stocks were dead. We said it's probably not the case. And that's certainly been the case this year that, that those stocks in particular have been leading the charge. In fact, the top 10 stocks in the NASDAQ have made up about 90% of the advance since January. So, uh, you know, it's a very, very narrow rally we've had this year, a very defined rally of the stocks that are leading the way. Um, that's not necessarily a healthy market, but it's still a market that, that is rallying higher here. So just kind of, you know, understand that. Um, but overall, again, markets just really, uh, you know, going back to where we were in, in February of this year, the market really hasn't gone anywhere. Most of, the, most of the gain this year came in the month of January. And since then, it's been a lot of news and headlines, but markets really not going anywhere. And, but that's also a good thing, too, because we've had a banking crisis, um, bank failures, all those type of things, markets holding in there very well. So all this stuff is getting priced into the market. Recessionary concerns, inflation concerns, Fed rate hikes, bank crisis, all these things continue to kind of get just factored into the market. Market is adjusting for those. Um, the next big events that we'll talk about this morning, of course, we've got the debt ceiling issue coming up. Janet Yellen over the weekend coming out with her typical, you know, end of the world doom and gloom. If we don't raise the debt ceiling, of course, she's supporting the the administration and her comments, but we'll talk about why she's wrong about what she said. Um, also, <laughs> um, we'll get into uh, what Buffett said over the weekend as well. Uh, so Berkshire Hathaway had their big annual convention and shareholder meeting and made a very interesting comment about the economy. Usually Warren Buffett, very optimistic, never bet against capitalism has been his motto for a long time. This year, a little bit different tone that he took. And we'll talk a little bit about what he said in particular 
uh, relating to the economy as well. Um, this weekend's newsletter is out. I'm going to talk a little bit about this this morning uh, in regards to Janet Yellen's comments. Uh, her comments came in, came out after I wrote my article this weekend, but still in the article for the newsletter this weekend, we talked about why the, you know, the debt ceiling and how it works and what the outcomes are going to be and why the debt ceiling could actually be a very, very good opportunity to add fixed income into your portfolio as well. So we'll get into all that this morning, but as we talk about the debt ceiling issue coming up next, that you'll have a lot of attendant charts and graphs in this weekend's newsletter. So simply go by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, click on the newsletter link right there under the insights tab. All of the information is there for you. Again, we're gonna talk a little bit about more, that more this morning, but again, that newsletter went real in depth into what the debt ceiling is, how it works and what the outcomes were and the fact that yes, the US has actually defaulted on their debt before. Shocker, I know. I know, it's absolutely shocking, but it happened back in 1979. We'll talk about that coming up here on The Real Investment Show. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Don't go away. daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Retirement's not what it used to be, and knowing how health insurance works after you leave your job is vital. Our next Lunch and Learn will tackle transitioning to Medicare Thursday, May 11th with Danny Ratliff and Richard Rosso. How will Medicare work with the insurance you already have? What are the deadlines you need to know for signing up for Medicare? Register now for our Transitioning to Medicare Lunch and Learn with Ratliff and Rosso at realinvestmentadvice.com. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Like the show this morning. I'm Rose Lance Roberts. Of course, it is, uh, like I said, uh, Monday. So just uh, let's get it going for the day. <laughs> um, over the weekend, uh, Janet Yellen, of course, she is the Treasury Secretary and uh, former Fed Chair. And of course, she is serving at the pleasure of the President right now as uh, Treasury Secretary. So of course, she has to support the administration. Uh, coming out this weekend, uh, making a fairly dire warning. Uh, I'll just read to you from the CNBC article here real quick. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen on Sunday said that failure to raise the debt ceiling will cause a steep economic downturn in the U.S. And she reiterated her warning that the Treasury Department may run out of measures to pay its debt obligations by June. Her quote is, of course, this was on ABC's This Week. Our current projection is that in early June, a day will come when we're unable to pay our bills unless Congress raises the debt ceiling, and it's something I strongly urge Congress to do. Okay, so a couple of things, first of all, is that this is a now almost annual event, is the debt ceiling drama. And in fact, I've got a chart here. Going back to 1979, we have raised the debt ceiling 78 times, um, 49 times under Republicans, everything else under the Democrats. 
So it is a bipartisan issue of raising the debt ceiling. There's a lot of calls, of course, as we said before, is that people go, well, I don't know why we have a debt ceiling. We're just going to keep raising it. Well, at least, at least, right, at least it requires some conversation. Without a debt ceiling, we would just issue debt willy-nilly and just keep going and spend money. And at least there's something for that momentarily puts a break on the spending and says, hey, maybe we can get some cooler, rational heads you know, to think about spending money, make some bipartisan agreements to maybe, you know, slow down the spending a bit. Um, those hopes always kind of fall on deaf ears, but nonetheless, it's always a hope, right? So at least we have a break. Uh, you know, it, it's it's at least a, a, a slight break requiring some conversation. So that's that. If, if there's no other reason to have a debt ceiling limit, that's it, right? Now, normally what the, the original intention of the debt ceiling was was to limit government period basically you had a debt ceiling and when you got there you weren't supposed to raise it <laughs> you were supposed to say oh i'm at i'm at my credit limit let's uh you know cut spending and you know re you know rethink what we're doing you know governmentally and you know be fiscally responsible but that kind of fell out the window back in 1979 anyway so here we are so but the the big issue always comes around is every time we get to these debt ceiling debates you know it's always oh we're gonna default on our debt okay so let's slow that pony down for just a minute. We don't need any more deaths at the Kentucky Derby. So just slow down. Since uh, we're talking about default, there's two types of default. And yes, the government could potentially default on its obligations. It could. It's absolutely a possibility. If there is not an adjustment made to allow the Treasury Department to issue debt, because how do we pay our bills, right? Because we live beyond our means, right? So how do we pay our bills? Well, when we spend all of our revenue, we just had, you know, we just had tax day back on the 15th. So we had all this tax revenue come into the government that's already spent. And we've got all these obligations that we've committed to spending money on, you know, silly things like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, prescription drug benefits, interest on the debt. We have all these obligations we have to pay, right? We've got bills, just like any other household. You know, you got your cable bill, you got your phone bill, you got your electric bill, utility bills. Got to pay those bills. They're going to show up regardless of whether or not you have any money in the bank. And if you don't pay those bills, well, people start shutting off access to your services, right? That's just, that's just how it works. Works the same way in government. The only difference in government that you can't do... <laughs> is go print some more money to make up the shortfall between what you have coming in from your income and what you have bills going out. So we're, you know, as individuals and households, we are confined to the amount of income we have and having to at least have some smidgen of a budget in our household says, hey, when we're out of our income, yes, we can tap our credit cards, but there's a limit to that debt as well. There's only so, so much that banks will extend credit to us before they say no. So there's a limit to our, our, our spending ability. Well, same way in government. Government has income coming in. We pay our bills. We run out of money. We issue debt. Right? That's, the, that's their credit card. And there's not really a limit to the amount of debt that we can issue outside of this debt limit ceiling that we're talking about. That's when we have to raise it. We're now needing to ask for a credit limit adjustment for the government. And this is very simplistic terms, by the way. So here we are, we're at our, our, our credit limit, and uh, 
Janet Yellen is currently in using emergency measures. And what are emergency measures? These are where we borrow from federal pension funds, etc., in order to pay our, our debt. Now, there's once those funds are depleted, and if the Treasury can't issue more debt because of the debt ceiling limit, then we're going to have to start figuring out some other ways to pay our bills. And that's where the, the, the threat comes in. We're going to default on our debt. Well, no, we're not. Because we can fire a lot of government employees, utilize their payroll checks for paying our bills. We can shut down national parks. We can stop funding things like the IRS, uh, which I don't think anybody would complain about. Um, <laughs> stop funding the national defense and uh, sending money to Ukraine, etc. We could do those things, right? So there's other monies to get to to pay what we call mandatory spending. And this is the big differentiator. The federal budget is broken into two parts. We have mandatory and discretionary spending. Mandatory is Social Security, welfare, prescription drug benefits, interest on the debt. Those get paid regardless of what else is going on, period. Everything else is discretionary, and that's where we start shutting down national parks. We start firing employees. We start doing all those type of things. Sorry, can't send more money to the Ukraine right now whether you agree with it or not. At some point, though, even that will run out of money. And then the question will be, what gets cut next, right? And that's where the threat of the default comes in. And now, there's two types of default. There is what's called a technical default, and there's what is called an actual default. What is a default? That is when you don't pay your loan, right? So let's just uh, put this in simple terms. You have a mortgage with your bank and your monthly principal and interest payment come due and you don't send them a check. You are now in default. Now, let me ask you a question. Does the bank come to your house the very next day and take the keys to your house? No. Why? Well, because you've been a good payer in the past and you've got good credit. Maybe something happened, right? Um, you know, the mortgage payment came due on a Saturday and banks weren't open. You couldn't wire the money. Right? You have to wait for the banks to open. Or you got laid off work and you just got a new job and, you know, you're, you're going to make the payment, but it's going to be a couple weeks late. You got to wait to get paid. You're in technical default. Now, in most of your loan documents, corporate contracts, etc., there is a default clause within that contract, which gives you a stated period of time to cure your default. If you are in default, you will accrue some penalty uh, of interest and some payment measure for being in default. But you will have 30, 60, 90 days, whatever it is, to cure that default and get yourself back together before you get into an actual default. An actual default is when you have now refused to pay your debt entirely or simply can't. And that's where people start coming to reclaim their property to cure your default. 
So what kind of default are we talking about here? Because Janet Yellen says we're going to have this major crisis if we don't pay our debt because, well, we'll have defaulted on our debt and then that will just cause a major economic downturn. Let's assume that we don't raise the debt ceiling in time. Again, we're going to have to cut a lot of government services, but we'll keep making those interest payments on our debt. Principal's not due yet, right? We don't owe the principal. We owe the interest. So the interest payment has to go out to all those debt holders that own our treasury debt. You've been out buying treasury bills lately for your account. You are now a creditor to the United States. They owe you an interest payment. That interest payment will get made, and it will get made on time. But let's assume for a moment that the interest payment doesn't come on time. The government is now in a technical default. A lot of headlines say, well, the U.S. has never defaulted on their debt before. That is not true. In 1979, that's exactly what happened. And there was a glitch with the payment system. And we defaulted on our debt very temporarily. It took about five days. And once the technical glitch was fixed, payments were sent out and we were no longer in default of our debt. And yes, interest rates spiked for about five minutes during that default. And as soon as the payment was made, yields fell. And they fell sharply. In fact, they fell to drastically lower levels as there was a rush to buy the treasury debt again. So while these headlines are great for manufacturing a crisis and, and getting headlines and, and you know making notice, a technical default is vastly different. You know, not paying our debt for a few days until we get the debt ceiling revolved is vastly different than not paying our debt at all and somebody coming to repossess our country. Very different outcomes. So again, be careful with the, the headlines. Focus on the action. Come back, wrap this up, talk a little bit about Warren Buffett, what he said at the Berkshire Hathaway meeting as well. Don't go away. The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. I want to wrap up a little bit about our debt ceiling debate issue. Again, it's not an issue. It's a non-crisis. We will hike the debt ceiling limit. Yes, there'll be a lot of uh, intrigue and drama. It'll be Mission Impossible Part 6 or whatever number we're on with Tom Cruise. You know, however, there's, you know, in, in every in every spy movie, there's always got to be the, the bomb that's about to explode. And we've always got the, the ticker, you know, uh, Counting down, you know, three, two, one, and the last possible second, right? They defuse the bomb and save the world, and that's what we're talking about here. It'll be it'll be drama and intrigue down to the last possible second, and then everybody will come to their senses because nobody 
nobody really, despite all their tough talk and, and posturing and positioning, et cetera, nobody, even the president and even their handlers and even the president behind the president, the, the person that's actually running the country, which is always the case, by the way, um, wants a default, right? They, they don't want this. It's not good for the country. It's not good for their positions. And it doesn't matter who you want to blame. At the end of the day, the president gets the blame. If we defaulted on our debt, doesn't matter. You can point fingers and say, oh, it was those nasty Republicans. Or you can say, it was, oh, those terrible Democrats. At the end of the day, the guy in the White House owns it. But that is not good in a year before a presidential election cycle. So this will get resolved. And we'll move on with life. Um. Like I said, in the newsletter, if you go to the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, I went to a, a good bit of detail on the debt ceiling, uh, what it is and how this winds up and what it means over time. And, and most importantly, why, uh, just like in 1979, that this is likely going to be a very good opportunity to buy long-dated treasuries. So if there is a moment here where we get into a 2011 debt ceiling debate standoff or a 1979 debt ceiling debate, which led to that technical default back then. Um, amazing. Times don't change. Same topics today as they were back in the late, you know, 1979. Same issues, same, issues, same outcomes. So again, this will all get resolved, but as it was back then, interest rates did spike up for that moment of the crisis, and then that was your buying opportunity before rates started to fall again, and they fell fast after that. So again, just a, a, a focus on reality versus headlines and keep your focus on what is actually going on within the markets and with your money. I uh, thought this was interesting. Also, over the weekend, Warren Buffett held his annual Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meeting. And of course, it was always something that is a, a big gala affair, right? They have all kind of all all the vendors of the companies that they own stuff in, or you know, go out there and you do shopping and buy all kinds of of stuff. And of course, they have their annual shareholder meeting. They talk about the business, and, and of course, uh, Warren Buffett makes his commentary. And I thought it was interesting this year because. Warren Buffett is usually very optimistic about America and capitalism and the success that he has drawn from being a supporter of capitalism. And normally he is, he's, he's you know, supportive of the administrations. He's supportive of policies. He's supportive of the, the you know, the lawmakers because they can obviously impact his business dramatically by passing legislation, rules, or laws that are not favorable to the companies that he owns. So he's always supportive of the parties in power. But he's also very, always very optimistic about the American economy. Not so much this year. thought it was interesting. And he said that you know, while he was speaking at the conference, he says that he expects earnings that the majority of the of his businesses. Now he's talking about the companies that he owns, in particular, because this is a shareholder meeting of Berkshire Hathaway. So he's talking specifically about the companies that he owns. 
He says he expects the earnings of the majority of the conglomerate's operations to fall this year. One of the companies that he owns a big chunk of, of course, is Apple. So just that's that's within his group of of, of investments. As the coming economic downturn slows corporate activity. So Warren Buffett expecting an economic slowdown. That's going to, of course, impact earnings. But that really hasn't seemed to be the case so far, right? We've we've seen earnings decline from last year. They appeared to have troughed in the fourth quarter of last year. They actually upticked a bit from those uh, from the earnings of last quarter to this quarter. They have actually upticked off the low, still down from a year ago, but have upticked. So temporarily, there's at least a trough low in earnings. But Warren Buffett's now is saying that he expects an, an acceleration of an economic slowdown later this year, and that that will lead to slower earnings for a lot of the companies that he has investments in. Now, of course, the, this uh, you know these predictions are coming at a time where we've got this regional kind of regional bank upheaval going on, and Charlie Munger. And these are two very old guys, by the way. Charlie Munger's 90 years old. Um, he joined uh, Warren Buffett on the stage and said, the more difficult economic environment will also make it harder for value investors who typically buy stocks that look cheap compared to the intrinsic value of the businesses. He says, get used to making less money on your investments. So... You know, it's just kind of an interesting note because, again, we have this real kind of dichotomy going on between the markets and the economic data. And if we take a look at a lot of the economic data, there's certainly concern about a recessionary downturn. Right? You know, we've got manufacturing is slowing down. We've got services data slowing down. We've got inverted yield curves, you know, and so forth and so on. We've been through all these numbers. And so there's certainly plenty of, of signs that suggest that earnings will weaken later this year as the economy continues to kind of slow because of higher interest rates by the Fed. But yet markets aren't reflecting that, of course, since markets bottomed in October and have been rallying ever since. So despite the fact that there's this outlook for slower economic growth and earnings, stocks are pricing in a acceleration of earnings through the end of the year. So both can't be right. Either the markets are wrong or the economic data is, which is lagging, is getting ready to trough and turn up, which will then support the market's forward-looking view. There's and, and there's the real challenge as investors. A lot of the economic data that we look at is sentiment-based. ISM manufacturing, ISM services, uh, New York Regional Fed surveys, uh, those type of things. These are all sentiment-based. How do you feel about the economy right now? Are things better or worse? Things are terrible right now. But the market's going, I think the worst is in. I think things are getting better now. And investors looking forward are saying, we may have seen the peak of those bad numbers. Right? We may have seen, the, not the peak, but the trough of those bad numbers. And those are going to start to improve. If the market's right, then October was the low of the market. The economic data will then begin to support the market's advance, and markets will be able to start to grind their way higher. 
if the markets are too optimistic, then we've got another leg lower as the economic data weakens further. But the question is, is that a lot of this economic data is, is backward looking. And so by the time we see whether or not there's an improvement, we're going to be a little bit further down the road. And so there's, there's the risk. It's interesting that Buffett is, of course, you know, a little bit more negative on the economy because usually he's very optimistic. So this was kind of a departure from his normal kind of stance. Uh, one thing he did say is with unemployment being so low, it's hard to believe we're going to fall off a cliff into a recession at this consumer level. question is whether or not this is an asset value recession in this in other words asset values have already corrected by 20 percent or so on an inflate so if you take a look back through the end of 2022 the stock market was down about 20 percent ish um, after dividends it was down about 18 percent but on an inflation adjusted basis we were down about 26 and a half percent a 26.5% decline is a normal recessionary drawdown for an economy. So the question becomes, is has the market priced in a potential economic recession? And if it occurred already, and we just haven't recognized it yet, how does that adjust in prices going forward? This is the challenge. Again, I don't have the answer, right? We just have to look at the data we have and try to parse together what the market's trying to say versus what the economic data is saying. And it's really easy to jump into that camp that everything's really bad in the economy and be on the wrong side of the trade in terms of the investments. That's the big challenge. Just outside of that, uh, Warren Buffett uh, took its cash pile ending the quarter to $130.6 billion. That was a $2 billion increase from the end of the year. We talk about a lot of these money market funds that are going up so sharply. Most of those are institutional funds of companies like Berkshire Hathaway that have billions sitting in cash, Apple included. All right, be right back after the break. We're ready to wrap up the show. daily investment news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com Back to the show, uh, I made a misstatement. Uh, CNBC had noted that Charlie Munger was 90 years old. He's actually 99 years old. He was born in 1924. So it just goes to show you that if you want to live longer, keep your mind busy, right? Um, uh, Warren Buffett, by the way, is 92. They keep talking about succession, but they're still here. They may outlive both of us, so we'll see. <laughs> Um, anyway, 
So as we get ready to kind of start the day, uh, you know, there's um, not a lot of concern right now in the markets, uh, despite all of the headlines and podcasts and, you know, you name it, kind of, uh, you know, media in general, very doom and gloom. Um, but yet the markets continue to functionally operate over the weekend, of course, a big sigh of relief, no bank failures. <laughs> Take what we can get. Uh, so, Mark, uh, kind of futures are, are flattish this morning. S&P's up about 7. Uh, Dow's up about 67 right now. 10-year yield's up just a smidge to 3.48. But, again, this has just been kind of uh, a wait-and-see market right now. Again, we still have quite a few earnings today. We have Berkshire Hathaway is actually reporting earnings today uh, after their meeting this weekend. We still have uh, several big companies in the index. I mean, NVIDIA is still due to report earnings. Uh, everybody will be closely watching that company for comments about artificial intelligence. Um, what stocks are leading that innovation is going to be the big question as AI becomes more and more of a thing that we look at. You know, it's interesting, uh, of course, it's always not very long before somebody comments that, yes, AI will displace jobs, but that means those people that lose their jobs can just go get other jobs. Right? It's always the case. If you take a look at employment as a function, the vast number of jobs that have been created since the pandemic lows are in fast food, uh, service-related industries, lower-wage-paying jobs. These aren't higher wage paying jobs that we're creating. In fact, yes, we are creating some jobs in those areas, but not as many as we're creating at the lower end. And so the, the question becomes is where does uh, you know, AI fit into this and what happens to those jobs? That's always kind of the big question. And so you have to think about that for a moment. Um, we just wrote an article recently about the problem with minimum wage isn't just paying higher minimum wages to one group of people. It's the it's the escalator effect of minimum wage. You increase the minimum wage to the minimum wage crew. Well, if you increase them some, from, say, seven and a half to 15, there are people making $15 an hour. So now you got to move them to 20. And the guy that was making 20, you got to move them to 25, so forth and so on. And that 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 increases the cost of labor for businesses. And so the option... And California found this out when they hiked minimum wages to twenty-two dollars. Uh, restaurants go either went out of business or they automated it. McDonald's created a fully automated McDonald's. Right? There's no employees. It's all robots. So think about the function of when you combine robots with artificial intelligence. So now I drive up to a McDonald's window or I walk inside and there's a kiosk and I just say, yeah, give me a quarter pounder with fries and a large drink. And it says, thank you very much. Here's the amount. Scan your debit card and out on the tray comes your food. Half of McDonald's is self-serve anyway. They hand you a cup, you fill up your own drink, right? So, you know, you're, you're, you know it's, it's not unfeasible to replace the vast majority of restaurant workers with both a combination of self-service and artificial intelligence. So now, okay, so let's just run with that for just a moment. Where does that person get a job? They're not going to go out and be a lawyer. Right? I mean, they have a specific skill set. They've got an education level. They are at some point in their life that they're working at these jobs. Probably most of these, you know, most of the, the people that you encounter in restaurants are what? They're younger, right? They're in college. They're waiting tables and whatever it is to pay their way through school, make some extra money, summer jobs, summer work, those type of things. 
So hopefully they're going to school and when they graduate, they've now got a degree. And so they now have a degree in, uh, as being a lawyer. Congratulations. You're now amongst the proud few lawyers that are out there. Unfortunately, AI is now dis- or will potentially displace lawyers. AI is now passing the bar exam. <laughs> so you were planning on being a lawyer, but now AI has displaced that job because we don't need as many lawyers because AI can now do the research, they can write the briefs, they can do all the things that you know, lawyers assistants, etc. were doing paralegals, etc. Those jobs now gone. So what's that person going to do? So he's so the paralegal says, "Well, I was going to be a paralegal, so now I guess I will go be a real estate agent." Well, AI is going to replace a lot of real estate agents. Okay, so I can't be a real estate. So the question is, is ultimately, where does that job go? Because the difference between just robotics, which was the initial concern, remember when robotics were starting to take over manufacturing jobs in auto plants, people were saying, well, they'll just go get a job doing something else. And sure, they will. But will that job be a higher paying job? Will that job be a more productive job? Will that job be something that inures to a stronger economic environment? Or will that job be a lower paying job because that's the jobs that A, cannot be reproduced or supplemented by artificial intelligence? What jobs are those? Plumbers, pipe fitters, electricians. Good jobs, by the way. Good jobs. Blue collar work. Very good jobs. Nobody wants to do them because they're blue collar. So the good news on this is that, yes, AI is going to displace some jobs. And yes, people will have to find a different form of work. And yes, it may be the function of those people finding work in the service economy that can't be displaced by artificial intelligence. There are some jobs that no matter how good AI is, It's not going to displace the human element entirely. There's some jobs that can. You start combining robotics and artificial intelligence. Think about how that goes in healthcare. We already have robotic apparatuses to perform surgeries. Combine that with artificial intelligence and you've got displacement. But there's going to be some jobs that can't be displaced entirely but the but the question becomes what happens to the global impact to the labor force from artificial intelligence and i don't have the answer i'm not saying i have the answer i'm just thinking through all of this the 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 always quick answer is oh don't worry about this because just because you lose your job as a lawyer an engineer an architect a doctor whatever it is an accountant Think about how easy it'd be to replace an accountant with artificial intelligence. Think about the innovations on preparing your taxes in the future with artificial intelligence. So, yes, those jobs are going to get displaced. Where do those people go? And how many of those other jobs are there available for the people that we will displace from artificial intelligence? Are there enough jobs to replace 
all those and let's just assume for a moment just and here's 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 the the question assume for a moment we have a hundred million people in the labor force and let's just assume for a moment that tomorrow morning we wake up and ai has now displaced 50 million of those jobs the quick answer is always well don't worry about it because those 50 million people will just find other jobs. Well, there were only 100 million jobs available to start with. 50 million just got replaced by AI. Where are those 50 million people going to get jobs? Are they all going to become artificial intelligence programmers? There's only so many of those jobs. And are those people intelligent enough to change from whatever degree that they had and whatever job that they were in to all of a sudden become programmers for artificial intelligence, developers of robotics, whatever it is, right? There's a whole re-education and training part we have to talk about as well. We haven't even gotten to that yet. So I think it's a bad analysis. Here's my point about this. I think it's a bad analysis to simply step out and say, don't worry about it because just because AI replaces some jobs, that means that everybody else will get other jobs and there'll be better jobs. I don't think there's a case for that. Wages have been stagnant for 25 years. After inflation, people have, are making less money. We have a bigger and bigger divergence of wealth within the economy between the bottom 10% and the top 1%. Those that are making the artificial intelligence, those that are developing the robotics, those that are employing those things in their businesses, they will become richer. Those that are the workers that provide the services to those employers will be poorer such as the function of capitalism. So, like I said, I don't have the answer. I'm trying to think through this, right, along with you. But I think my point, uh, I not think, but my point is that I'm trying to make is that I think we have to be very careful with just making broad-based assumptions that, oh, the economy will just be fine and everybody will be just fine. AI will just make everything better. I don't think that's actually the case because we have plenty of cases already with just how robotics that we have employed in things like manufacturing and warehouse and other type of work have not really led to a massive increase in wealth and prosperity for Americans getting better paying jobs. Anyway, just a thought. Wrap up show for today. Be back tomorrow, of course. Uh, we'll uh, see how today works out. We'll get you an update tomorrow. And uh, keep on a watch on this whole banking issue as it continues to unfold. Again, have a great day. Be sure to go by the website. Our latest newsletter is out talking about the debt crisis and what that means. And tomorrow we'll be talking uh, on, our, on our blog post tomorrow about the record short positions in both stocks and bonds at the same time. How can you have that? That makes no sense. But that's coming up tomorrow. We'll talk about that as well right here on The Real Investment Show. Have a great day. See you back then tomorrow.